At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello everyone and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast. It's me, Hannah and Joe presenting the podcast today. We have a very exciting guest joining us, something a little bit different to what we're used to. We're joined by Patrick Cox from Sunny Ibiza, a fashion designer who designed shoes for multiple designers in the 80s and 90s, ranging from Vivian Westwood to John Galliano. The wannabe loaf was incredibly popular in the 90s, so popular that a doorman was needed to handle the queues outside the shop. We're hoping to hear more about his story from high fashion in London to his now quieter life in Ibiza and the role that the psychedelic 5-MeO-DMT has played in this. A very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello to everybody. Thank you very much. I thought we could kick off um, by you telling us a bit about your background and how you ended up designing shoes in London in the 80s. Wow. Okay. Well, as you'll notice from my voice, I am Canadian by birth. My father's from the East End of London. He moved to Canada, met my mum, who's Canadian, but both her parents are British. So I had a British passport since birth. I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, middle of nowhere. Spent a lot of bit of my childhood in Africa because my father was a linguist and he kind of dragged us all over the world till my mother divorced him. <laughs> and we went sadly back to Canada. I lived there till the age of 17 in Edmonton, Alberta. Then I moved to Toronto at the age of 17 to escape the stifling suburbia of Western Canada. I was in Toronto for two years and I knew that I wanted more out of life and I worked for a clothing designer. I hadn't been to fashion college yet. I had no official training, but he noticed that I liked doing the shoes because I was sort of taking care of styling a fashion show before the word stylist even existed. And he said to me one day, uh, during the punk years, I was in London and I found a shoe college and maybe you should enroll in that. And the only word I heard in that sentence was London. So I um, moved in um, September September 1983 at the age of 20 to London on my own. Attended uh, Cordwainers College, which is in Hackney. It was bleak back in those days. It's not the trendy Hackney <laughs> that it is today. <laughs> but I was very determined and very stubborn because I, I, I mean, I, I literally wanted to leave within about six months. I was, I, I think I'd given up, but um, I kept going. New Year's Eve between 1983 and 1984 in the toilets of a speakeasy in Soho, I met the Vivian Westwood team. Vivian Westwood wow. was fifty percent of the reason I moved to England. She was my hero. I worshipped, you know, Vivian Westwood and everything she did. They walked up to me in the toilets and they said, "You're that American boy that shops in our store." And I said, "Canadian, actually." And they said, "Oh, <laughs> we think you're cool. Would you like to hang out with us?" <laughs> wow, that's very cool. I mean, it was life changing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they said, "You know, we think you're cool. Would you like to hang out with us?" That might sound really strange and pathetic, but for a 20-year-old kid struggling in London, that was the, you know, the, the golden ticket, basically. 
Vivian and Malcolm, I don't know if you know the history of Vivian Westwood, but she was partners with Malcolm McLaren in life and in work. Vivian and Malcolm had just broken up. So one of these people was, his name was David Staines. He was visited, Vivian's right-hand man. And six weeks before the show, Vivian and David were sitting there and they went, oops, we forgot to do the shoes because Malcolm used to do the styling of the show, the music, the accessories. So David said, oh, my friend Patrick that I met in the toilet on New Year's Eve, he's the shoe designer. <laughs> and I got the gig. So I ended up doing the shoes for Vivian in Paris. Vivian had not a penny of money at the time. So I ended up funding the production of 32 pairs of shoes, I think it was. I ended up carrying them myself to Paris. I think I went over the hovercraft back then and delivering them to her hotel room. And the rest was history. In the audience was all the new wave of British designers that were still in St. Martin's, like John Galliano, John Flett. Word got out that I was the cobbler about town. And I started doing shoes for John and... At one point, I think 50% of British Fashion Week I was doing. And I launched my own business at the same time. I finished college in July 85 and never looked back. Patrick, that's such a meteoric rise <laughs> to, to kind of success and stardom, you know, working with the kind of, I don't know, the stars of the time. That's well, amazing. I mean, meteoric rise, nobody had any money. <laughs> I didn't make a in my career till 1993 when I designed this loafer in my collection, which then became the wannabe loafer. Up until that point, I rarely sold more than two, 3,000 pairs a season, let's say. It was a cottage industry. You know, the stores bought me to put me in the window, but they never bought quantity because they never knew if I deliver or it was all made in England still at that point. And then with the wannabe loafer, we went very quickly in a period of 13 months, we went from 3,000 pairs a season to a quarter million pairs a season. And then by the next year, we were selling into millions. So it all sounds nice, <laughs> but it was a lot of smoke. Yeah, and then, then things kicked into gear in the late 90s. And then we started to sell millions of pairs. And you know, the wannabe you know, kind of goes down in history books, doesn't it? I guess. And was the factory in London? I guess you had a factory making the wannabe loafer? No. Okay. My initial shoes were made in London, yes. And I mean, to call it a factory would be very grandiose. It was sort of four, four or three Greek Cypriot cobblers grouped together working in a little industrial unit behind King's Cross because they didn't sell very much. So they didn't have to make very much. So that's what happened. And then I moved my production to Italy in the late 80s. Again, just got messed around, messed around, messed around until the wannabe loafer. And then, then I started working with, yeah, some of the best factories in Italy and continued to until I, until I left footwear. And the wannabe loafer was such a hit. Why do you think it became so popular in the 90s? It was many things. I mean, it was the time of diffusion lines. There was DKNY and CK1 and Agnes Beast and Gautier Jr. Everybody was doing secondary lines. And so the Patrick Cox line, which continued even though I had the wannabe loafer, the shoes at that time were probably 250 pounds a pair. And when we came out with the wannabe, it was 80 pounds a pair when we started. So it was very aspirational. I chose the name wannabe because I thought all of these other names were a bit made up and pretentious. So I thought you want to be someone who has 250 pounds for a pair of shoes, but you're not. You've got 80 quid in your pocket for a pair of shoes. So that was the idea. That was the start. Also, they were very comfortable. 
because of the tubular construction, which I won't bore your listeners into what a tubular construction is, but it's a true moccasin construction. So it's very flexible. So, you know, it was the shoe of UK Garage because, you know, everybody could dance in these shoes. And this is still when sneakers weren't allowed in nightclubs. You know, now everybody's in sneakers. But back then, if you wore sneakers, you were, you were told you weren't allowed in. So there was that. I think I personified the wannabe lifestyle. The brand was very associated with me. I think if an Italian designer, nameless designer had just done the shoe, it might have faded fast. But it was the time of cruel Britannia. You know, we dressed the Oasis boys. We, had, we dressed pretty well everybody. Everybody had my shoes on at that period. So I rode that wave of cool Britannia. One of my most iconic shoes has the Union Jack on the front which we did for 1996 and that that ended up you know transcending going everywhere so it was kind of it was the right shoe the right time the right price the right person who designed it england was exploding it kind of captured the zeitgeist of the moment i guess <laughs> it's a great story isn't it that's well, absolutely yeah and we love shoes don't we hannah <laughs> well, i do <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'm 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 all about comfort especially for clubbing so yeah i can appreciate why they became so popular yeah. And then with, with that wannabe, the wannabe life, the, what, what was the lifestyle that came alongside it in the, in the 90s? I mean, I had a great life until I didn't. You know, there was, you know, it, it fed all the demons, let's say, which I didn't realize it was feeding all my demons. There was a lot of drugs. <laughs> there was a lot of acclaim. There was, you know, a lot of press, obviously money, because I was making a lot of money back then. I had a lot of things that I hadn't re resolved in myself, in my childhood and things like that. And instead of saying you had to like me or I had to like myself, I was like, well, I must be likable because look what Vogue just said. And I must be likable because look what we just sold. And I must be likable because look at my bank turn, you know, my bank balance. So I didn't realize it. I was probably a little shallow <laughs> in that time of success, but I was having the best time, obviously, I thought. And then when things slowed down and then when things went completely off the rails, then I realized that something needed to change. So I just read about the, the therapy. Did that come later then, the Hoffman process that you underwent? Right. So it gets a bit messy. So about 2002, I was opening one or two stores around the world in the late 90s, early 2000s. Then the playing field changed in fashion. Then these super groups arrived, the Prada group, the Louis Vuitton group, the Gucci group. So then instead of my competitor Gosh. being one individual with his or her brand, I was competing against conglomerates. So then everybody starts saying, oh, you should be opening 30 stores a year like Prada's doing, or 40 stores a year like Gucci's doing. So I listened to that siren song and I got investors for the first time because before that, I didn't even have an overdraft at the bank. We just made a lot of money and did whatever I wanted to do. And then we got investors involved and the usual sad story didn't work out. We started spending on a level I never would have agreed to. And then we needed bigger investors and they engineered to push me out of the company. So in 2007, I left the company completely and had probably a little bit of a nervous breakdown. I became agoraphobic. I couldn't leave. I had a four-story house in Little Venice. I, I got stuck on one floor of the house. I couldn't leave that floor for about four to six weeks. Luckily, there was a bathroom on that floor, but there wasn't a kitchen on that floor. So my PA would come around every day and bring me food. And, and then she'd say, you know, come on, let's go outside. And I'd go outside and just hold on to the lamppost and like cry. I couldn't walk down the street because I just 
I didn't know who I was anymore. You know, in that reductive sense, the Daily Mail would call me Patrick Cox, millionaire shoe designer. And I'm like, well, I can't use my name anymore because I've lost the company. I have no source of income. And I'm no longer allowed to be a shoe designer because of my gardening leave. So it all went wrong. And then I reached out to one of my friends. She, she's an editor at Vanity Fair. And I said, what do your rich, famous pe- friends do when they're really fucked up? And I said, and don't say something that's going to involve three years. I'm going to be dead in, in a couple of weeks. This, this can't go on. And she suggested the Hoffman. So I did the Hoffman. It was the most painful, visceral, real thing I'd ever done in my life because I was quite pampered at that point. Most people treat it as a last chance saloon. Most people have been in therapy and rehab for years. This was my first time. I didn't even know what language they were speaking some days. It was like, I, I called it psychobabble. It was amazing. It saved my life. I would never voluntarily do it again. But it, it started me making inquiries about my childhood and my upbringing and things like that. So the Hoffman process is an eight-day self-help psychodrama. It's very manipulative. You're sworn to secrecy. You're not supposed to say what happens in it. But they create situations and you react to them and, you know, all of a sudden you really want to talk and all of a sudden it's 24 hours of silence. And then it's just this, this, this. So they, it's all about, I mean, this part I can say, it's about prosecuting your parents, finding empathy with your parents, and ultimately forgiving your parents. It's all about intergenerational pain. It's all about not really blaming your parents because they did to you what was done to them, what was done to them, what was done to them, et cetera, et cetera. So when you finish the Hoffman, you're supposed to do your masterpiece where you individually see your parents if they're still alive and just simply say, I love you and I know you always love me. And that's supposed to wipe the slate clean. You're not supposed to talk about because every time you bring up the past, they have their version of reality. You have your version of reality and everyone gets angry. And that was my relationship with my parents when I did see them once every five years is just everyone got angry very quickly because I wanted an apology and they did anything wrong. <laughs> so um, that was, that's basically in a nutshell what the Hoffman is, yeah. And so the Hoffman was your first kind of step really in your, in your journey to, to, the he- to healing, would you say? Yeah, it made me come out of myself. It made me realize that I had a choice, that I had a voice in my mental health and that I needed to take control. I needed to play an active role in it, that things were just gonna roll along like they were. I'd always made fun of, not made fun of, but just it wasn't for me. I sort of questioned mental health and I questioned addiction. I questioned all these things. And then as as I was clinging to that lamppost and I could not walk down the street, I was like, whoa, this is real. (laughs) This This isn't made up. I'm freaking terrified. I can't move. And it's stronger than me. There's something that's literally stopping me from being able to function. So that was the beginning. That was 2007. Then I kind of went back to my old life, not Patrick Cox's huge success, but designing for other people, doing this, doing that. But it was really a period of, wow, I mean, almost 10 years of just making do, a lot of pretending, a lot of pretending. You know, when people say, how are you? You go fine because <laughs> you don't want to go. I want to kill myself <laughs> because I don't want to hear that. You know, and you, so there was a lot, lot, lot of pretending. I did see a therapist, a Hoffman-nominated therapist, for about ten sessions. And one day he said, "You're going to quit soon." I went, "Uh huh." And he goes, "How long do I have?" I went, "This is our last session," and he just said, "Get a dog." <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, 
get a dog. And he said, I'm not supposed to say yeah. this. And he goes, wow. you have so much, so much love to give. And you're so wrapped up in yourself. You need something to take you out of yourself. And that was the, um, my first English bulldog, Caesar. And then I got another English bulldog three years later, Brutus. And they moved to me with me to Ibiza. So the dogs were also part of your healing? Oh, the dogs are very much part of my healing. I mean, we'll, when we start to talk about my ceremony work and things like that, the dogs, the two new dogs that I have now, and indeed my old dogs before they passed, are always, always part of ceremony. My teacher used to say, uh, dogs are your guide more oh. than any, anyone here. He said the dogs pick up on everything. Because, you know, they communicate non-linguistically. Oh, incredible. So animals, they, they feel and see energy more than we know ourselves. So they're, they're a very big part of it. Yeah, definitely. That's it. So they're part of the ceremony. If people will allow them, if people will allow them, yeah, they are waiting in the wings. And they know that at the end of the ceremony, there'll be a lot of love <laughs> and a lot of hugging and they are there. You know, I'll tell you stories when you get to that. But yeah, they're, they're very much part of it. And they make me calmer too. I mean, obviously, he's a 45 kilo pit bull. So some people are like, whoa, I don't think I want to come to oh. with that standing over my face. So I'm like, okay, you know, whatever you want. But most people come around and just go, wow, these, these dogs are amazing. They're very healing. Yeah. Dogs are incredible. They have such an innate ability to be able to sense emotions. I mean, I'm super biased growing up with a dog so i i absolutely love them and i think that's an incredible advice to have dogs as part of your healing process and so your your move to ibiza then so i i kept going and kept going i launched a, a cup cup a cupcake shop called cox cookies and cake in soho which was sort of x-rated cupcakes we did titty cakes and ass cakes and cock cakes and all sorts of things <laughs> like that <laughs> and did they sell well <laughs> they sold amazingly well. We even had people that we were supposed to open in Harrods and Selfridges, and we had American people wanting to us to open in America. And I said, isn't that kind of Coles to Newcastle? Wow. Do you have enough cupcakes? And they went, not like these. And then I got a phone call from a big <laughs> Italian company to design shoes again. I went back to shoes because that's what I knew, and I ended up closing Cups, Cox Cookies and Cakes. I didn't want to be these Cox cookies and cake stores on every corner around the world that I had no role in because there already were Patrick Cox shoes around the world that I held no role in. And I just thought this is just too much of a, too, too much for me to, to cope with. So I just closed it, started working with this big Italian company after working with them for four or five years. My middle name is Lathbridge. My name is Patrick Lathbridge Cox. It was my great English uncle's last name. So I launched Lathbridge shoes thinking, this is what I need to do. I need to return to shoes. That's what it was. I was happy before. So I'm going to go back to those days. Well, if I didn't like my career when I was, you know, in the top five in the world, I certainly didn't like it when I was number 1000 or whatever I was when I started again. And after five seasons of sort of hitting my head against a wall, being in Italy, Monday to Friday, all the things I promised myself I would never do again. I thought, this is insane. You know, I'm going to, I remember sitting in a hotel in, in Milan talking to the great shoe designer Manolo Blahnik. And he, you know, at the time was 70. You know, he's obviously extremely wealthy and extremely successful, but he was complaining about being 70 and being in shoe factories. And I was like, wow, if you are not happy, I'm really not going to be happy at my level. So, unbeknownst to everybody, I came to Ibiza in the spring of. 2017 and I saw 22 properties in three days and I made an offer on the last one it got accepted 
And then at my birthday, March 19th, I had a party in my house in London and I just turned off the music and announced to everyone, the house you're standing in is sold and I'm moving to Ibiza in six months. And everybody went, what the? <laughs> I think one of my friends said, so you're going to become a drug addict full time. And I went, no, 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 no. I'm going there to, to not party. And they went, yeah, everybody moves to Ibiza to not party. So I moved in September 2017. And winter in Ibiza is sort of like therapy. It's a little bit like rehab. It's much, much, much quieter. There's less distractions, no clubs, very few restaurants. And if there's something you don't like about yourself, you're going to have to deal with it. And I realized I didn't know myself. And what I did know, I didn't like at all. And then the wheels well and truly came off. My architect was ripping me off. My builder was ripping me off. And one of my English bulldogs, the younger one, died suddenly. And then I just kind of flipped then i you know i talked about suicide really with everybody it was just um it was a cry for help and then um, one of my friends i was driving down the road crying trying to figure out how to let go of the wheel <laughs> and at that exact moment my friend called and he said do you need help and that's the classic intervention line and i knew they thought it was for drugs but you know as i argued many times subsequently in rehab and everything drugs were a symptom they were not the cause of my problem. I could be alone in the room, totally sober, and totally rip myself myself to shreds. I didn't need drugs or to be on a come down to hate myself. I was perfectly capable of doing that all on my own. So I said yes. They very kindly sent a plane because they knew I wouldn't leave the island without my dog, the surviving bulldog. So I went to rehab with my dog. <laughs> For a while and that was in kent at a place called promise p-r-o-m-i-s and i did 28 days i hated it <laughs> i fought tooth and nail every step of the way i argued pretty well constantly about every single concept that they had my biggest problem was well step number one you are powerless and I was like, if I'm powerless, then I'm literally just going to go back to my room and hang myself. I was like, because I, I can't, I can't cope with that. They wanted me to do positive affirmations in the morning, talk to the mirror and say, you're beautiful, you deserve love, whatever, all those sort of things. And then they wanted me to stand up in the evening and say I was an addict and, you know, depression and all the rest of it. And I just said, I'm not really getting this. It's not really working for me. While I was in rehab, a Buddhist friend of mine called by luck just by luck, someone I'd known for 10 years. And he said, when you get out of there, come to the Alps where he lives and spend a week with me. So as soon as I got a rehab, I flew straight to the Alps. And he just, he taught me about energy. We did visualizations, we did meditation, we did all these things, which I had never believed because I mean, I'm of the Christopher Hitchens camp. I could make a religious person probably cry within seconds because my biting wit and, you know, my just total unwillingness to accept anything other than black and white and what's in front of me. And he taught me about spirituality as opposed to, let's say, religion, which was a big step for me. And he got me to see energy and work with energy and things like that, which I just found mind-boggling. I, I just couldn't imagine that this was real. So I got back to Ibiza, October this is 2018, still with a half-built house, still with a dead dog, still depressed. And then some people I'd met in Ibiza suggested I start microdosing. So I started microdosing LSD with them. Instead of going on antidepressants, like every single day in rehab, they tried to put me on antidepressants. And I just said, no, I've done that twice. Did they? Yeah. 
on day one, they're like, you're suicide risk. So you're going on antidepressants and we want you on diazepam. And I went, nope, nope. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I said, if you can't get me clean, you know, or can't get me healthy without putting pills in me, then, then why am I here? <laughs> I can self-medicate with drugs in Ibiza. I can get fun drugs as opposed to these drugs in Ibiza, and it's still self-medicating. You know, I, I've smoked weed most of my life, and that was self-medicating. It, self it was just trying to numb the pain of what was going on. So I, I did the microdosing. It definitely helped with my mood, but it really didn't agree with my gut. I just had gurgling, gurgling, gurgling gut. So that I was really interested in that, Patrick. I read that because I have heard that before with microdosing. What happened with your gut? Well, I have a sensitive gut anyway. My mom said my first word as a kid was mummy tummy take. <laughs> so I've always had a bit of a sensitive gut. Me too, gut. actually. Yeah. Yeah, so I've just, always struggled with mine. Yeah, gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. You know what people can call it IBS. They can call it whatever. No one's ever figured out what it was, but LSD totally exacerbated it. I was bent over in the morning, ah, just with cramps and gurgling. And I said, yeah, this isn't for me. Then these, this group of friends, they said, oh, this practitioner is coming over from Los Angeles. She's going to be serving Toad. Would you like to be part of it? And I just jumped and said, yes. I didn't even know what I was saying yes to, but they sort of explained that it was more ayahuasca is what they'd explained. Before going to rehab, I had tried to do ayahuasca, but they said because I was taking Xanax daily that I wasn't allowed to, that I needed to be off the Xanax, which I came off of in rehab. My life before rehab was wake up in the morning, have a panic attack at four o'clock in the morning, take a Xanax, go to sleep, wake up at five o'clock, have another panic attack, take a Xanax, go to sleep. And it would just go on and on and on until I'd finally get out of bed and then just kind of try to face the day and then go to sleep, and then the whole cycle would start again. I was just, you know, panic attack, anxiety, and taking Xanax to try to stop that. So um, this practitioner, I spoke to her on the phone. Some of the people in the group, it was a small group, only five people. She was over for three days, only seeing five people for ceremony. And a lot of people were like, oh, Patrick has no ayahuasca experience. You know, you need to do ayahuasca for 10 years before you graduate to Toad. I spoke to her. And she said, no, you're, you're good. You're good. She goes, you really need help. Because I'm sure I cried and was hysterical in all sorts of motion swings during the phone calls that I had, the take-up calls, whatever you want to call it. And then she, she came to the island. And very, very, very sadly, so my dog had died a year before that. And the first day of ceremony was the anniversary of my dog dying. And my existing dog had 12 fits that morning before I went to ceremony. So I took him to the vet and they said, well, he's very old. and We don't know if he'll even survive the, the scans and everything. So come back at five. You might be getting a live dog or you might be taking your dog's body. So I showed up to the ceremony. Oh, no. Just absolutely hysterical. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to pull out. And the practitioner said, this is the best time for you to do this. She goes, what are you going to do, go home and cry for the next seven hours, waiting till five o'clock? She goes, why don't we do some healing? Why don't we try to do something? And I was like, okay. I mean, I was just mush by this point. So first day, we did two smaller doses, which would be 30 um, milligrams. I had the experience. It was beautiful. It was interesting. But when we all sat together that night and did integration, Everybody was talking about God, and I'm like, God? 
I, I, I think I did something else. I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I definitely don't know what you're talking about with, with God. And then they said, you need to go again. So they made room for me on the Friday. She was only doing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday ceremonies. They made room for me on the Thursday, on the Friday. And yeah, my life changed. <laughs> it was a bigger dose. And, and Patrick, that was a, a much higher dose, was it? Yes. Well, it was, it was kind of weird. First of all, we did 50 micrograms and nothing happened. I just sat there. Oh, and are you smoking it? Or yeah, yeah. is it I va- it you inhale, smoking yeah, it? Okay. yeah, you inhale it and you vaporize it in a, in a glass pipe and you, take a, and you take the smoke in and nothing happened. It was really quite bizarre. I think I fought it to such a degree that I just sat there. And then I started to get angry. And the whole point about ceremony is to surrender. And I was doing the opposite of surrendering. I was getting mad at the people around me going, well, what am I doing? Why am I hanging out with these people? But more than anything, I was mad at myself going, see, you're an idiot. You're a loser. You can't do this. I was really starting to self-flagellate and spiral. And she said, I've got the pipe ready. You're going again right away. And I went, okay. And so she put 60 in at this time. And yeah, my life changed. I mean, <laughs> I sat up after the experiment. I mean, I was crying. There was one friend holding space. He was crying because he'd seen what had happened in that 10 minutes. No one videoed this one. So I just have other people's words. But it was very cathartic, very somatic. I shook and vibrated all over the place. I would say 90% of people, when they smoke 5-MeO or toad, whatever you want to refer to, lay perfectly still. are known as thrashers. I was a thrasher of the nth degree. I was flying all over the place. Um, People were having to hold me down, foaming at the mouth, all sorts of things. And then, yeah, I mean, just the God moment, the transcendence, the beauty of it all, the unconditional love. I sat there and I was just crying. And I had a gray filter to my reality before Toad. Nothing was good. I hated my house. I hated Ibiza. I called it, I don't know if I can swear, but I called it that motherfucking rock in the middle of the motherfucking Mediterranean. Why the hell did I move here? It's killed my dog. It's killing me. I mean, I, I blame the island. I don't know why I blame the island. And then I obviously, more than anything, I blame myself, you know, because I, I joked, Ibiza was a great, great place until this asshole named Patrick Cox followed me. And then I was sort of stuck on my own in the countryside with my own feelings. So nothing, nothing got through. And then I was just sitting there, just looking around, just with a sense of wonderment and awe. And I just turned and I said, was the sky always this blue? Were the trees always this green? I, I never noticed. And you know, I used to get so mad when people on like social media wrote hashtag great gratitude. I was like, what the hell do they have to be so grateful for? You know, hashtag blessed. I was like, oh, shut up. And all of a sudden I was just grateful, grateful to be alive blessed that I, you know, the life that I had. Oh, yes, there were a million things wrong with it. But instead of dwelling constantly on the negative, I could just see the positive. I call it sort of a, an energy car wash. You're just blasted with pure, loving, white light. I also call it like a psychic reboot. It's like unplugging a TV and plugging it back in. So all the stories, all the conditioning of my whole life, you know, you're this, you're that, you're useless, you're stupid, you're unworthy, you're whatever, all of that conditioning. And most of that was my own, not insane voices in my own head, but that inner dialogue, well, in my case, it was an inner monologue, shut up. (laughs) And I just bathed in beauty and unconditional love. You know, in therapy, in rehab, they used to always say, 
the longest journey is from the head to the heart. And I was like, what the hell does that even mean? I mean, it just used to make me angry when they said that. I said, oh, more hippie bullshit. And the toad showed me. I react badly to authority because of my family. So when people are telling me in rehab, in therapy, wherever, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, I just shut down. The toad just showed me. And it was just life-changing. I mean, I call my life pre-toad and post-toad. And it's not a panacea. You know, you, you have to consciously choose to live in the light after the experiment. But to me, you are fundamentally changed forever. Uh, you can actively choose to go back to your ways or you can stay living in that light. You know, I use words like God now. <laughs> People, if they freak out about that, I'll say universal consciousness. I'll say source, all. You know, if someone that I'm working with is so scientific they can't wrap their head around that, then I can say, well, it shuts down the default mode network in your brain, allowing your synapses to fire. You know, I, I can approach it every way. What is the truth? I don't know, but it doesn't matter because it works. <laughs> so it, it, the, the change in me has been so incredible. All of my friends, you know, one of my friends said I, it was like on a TV, I went from black and white to color. For the, ne the very next day, calling people all over the world and saying I love them. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, and they're like, we all think you're going to be hanging on a rope. And I'm like, no, life is beautiful. This island is beautiful. You know, it's such a gift. And it's four years ago since that moment and still feel the same. Hi there, curious minds and seekers of knowledge. If you're passionate about understanding the science behind drugs or their impact on society, we've got something exciting for you. If you're looking to bridge the gap between cutting-edge research and practical applications, you should find out more about our recently launched consultancy arm of drug science. As of 2024, Drug Science has opened up a brand new consultancy service that brings evidence-based solutions to the forefront of drug policy and public health. Whether you are a policymaker, you work in biotech and drug discovery, you're part of an organisation navigating the complex landscape of drug-related issues. Drug Science Consultancy is here to guide you. Our team of experts combine years of research experience with a commitment to evidence-based decision-making. From scoping literature, to developing clinical trials or providing educational programmes, we can tailor our services to meet your unique needs. So don't just stay informed, Become a driving force of positive change with Drug Science Consultancy. Visit drugscience.org.uk slash consultancy today or check the show notes for a direct link. Such a transformation, incredible story. And it's so rapid, the effects you experienced. I think for our listeners, if you just tell people, just how long does the, the experience with 5-MeO-DMT last? Okay, the just to give people a bit of a glimpse. The peak experience is probably an average of 10 minutes. We sit down for ceremony, we'll probably do some breathing work beforehand just to calm and center yourself. People are always nervous, you know, because it's a really big deal. I mean, if someone isn't nervous, I said, if you appreciate what you're doing, because if, you, if you're not a little bit nervous, then you've got something wrong. And Patrick, how do they prepare in these ceremonies, the people? Is there any kind of set preparation they do in these ceremonies that you've been to? So Unlike ayahuasca, which has a long involved ceremony going at least a week, if not a month before being vegetarian, avoiding spice, avoiding sex, um, all sorts of things, toad doesn't have the same degree of preparation. 
you're obviously there's an intake program where you talk to the the practitioner and you know they ask you questions one of the most important is are you on ssris because if you are an antidepressant that's a giant no-no because you can go into serotonin shock and die then there's also something you ask about mental health is there a history of psychosis because all strong doses of psycho of psychedelics can bring on psychosis so that's something to avoid and then you ask about problems with the heart because bufo the toad as opposed to the pure molecule 5-MeO-DMT is a grab bag of alkaloids i don't know 50 100 alkaloids besides the active ingredient of 5-MeO-DMT and that can make your heart race or well, does make your heart race if you were serving an older person i would recommend that they you pure molecule 5-MeO because then you're just getting that any scientific study you read about they're working with 5-MeO because it's quantifiable in the venom of the toad there is anything from 50 to 30% 5-MeO so that's double <laughs> so you're giving someone a quantity but and you're calculating it was at 15 but they're actually getting double that so you know you do have to take that into account so there's an intake process people need to speak and say why they're doing this you know if someone says oh it's on my bucket list you know like bungee jumping then that is definitely not a candidate <laughs> to work with but if someone you know reveals their trauma what they're going through why they want to do this deep healing work then that's a good thing i also ask people their psychedelic history because I, this is definitely not where you start if someone has no psychedelic history then i would suggest not in a recreational way but in a ceremony way or at least alone with a trip sitter they start with some small quantities of psilocybin mushrooms and build up a little bit and so they can understand the space a little bit understand what's going to happen a little even though toad is totally different to anything at least that's some preparation from just jumping into a psychedelic space that it's interesting that that seems to be the way michael pollan did it He started yeah, he, with psilocybin. He hated it. <laughs> and then he went on to. Yeah, he went on. Yeah, you, you need. There has to be a progression. There has to be a progression. I definitely think there has to be a progression. It, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. You, you know, fundamentally, the person has to be ready for everything in their life to change. Their, their value systems, their belief systems. It really is, you know, a fundamental change. So if they're not ready for that, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. I mean, you know, I talk about this. But you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the world will never do this, <laughs> and that's probably a good thing. But you know, if you're if you're capable and you're doing the work, and you're questioning, then then I think it's a great modem to do it to transcend. So I would say about I always say if you can't give me seventy two hours on each side of ceremony clean from alcohol and drugs, then why are you doing this? But I would encourage even more. I would say at least a couple weeks without any psychedelics in your system because you want you want your vessel to be clean as possible, you know, to get the best experience. You're not going to die because you had a drink the day before. There's not going to be some sort of allergic reaction or anything like that, but you'll get less of a result. And if you're going to do something that's so life-changing that for most people is a once in a lifetime thing then give it time <laughs> you know really don't don't mess around with it on the day you need an empty stomach so i would recommend someone had a very light breakfast with no coffee and then 3 to 4 hours after that we would hold ceremony or you know a very light lunch and then the ceremony would be in the early evening something like that and then post post ceremony i would say you know you really really need to be on your own or in nature with one 
person you love and just really process what you've just been through and integrate what you've been through. Don't pick up your phone. Don't rush back to your, your life, your business, your kids, whatever, you know, really take time for yourself because it is, it is a lot. It is a lot to take in. Sorry, did you have help with integration after your ceremony? Yes, of course. So I had my group of friends who stayed on the island who, I mean, as I said, the first day of the integration, when they're all going on about God, I'm like, what are they talking about? And then after the breakthrough ceremony, then I obviously was talking and sharing and talking and sharing, and it all made so much more sense. I didn't do loads of research going in. And when I talk to people who are about to ceremony, I go, don't go on YouTube and look at videos. You'll terrify yourself. Do a little research so you're not going in blind. But don't go in with this list of things. Okay, I want the white lights, and then I want this, and then I want the God moment. And the, you know, because you will have your ceremony. Every ceremony is unique. I have probably, you know, I was going about once a month when I was training with my teacher. So I've probably gone, you know, over a hundred times. Every single time is different. And when you think you're going to have one, it's one way, then, you know, the medicine will throw you another way. It's always what you need necessarily more than what you want. Homework for someone, I would always say, could you, you know, think of a, an intention? Intention is so important with psychedelic work because you, you know, if you talk about Jesus to someone before they do mushrooms for an hour, they'll probably see Jesus. If you talk to someone about Buddha for an hour before they do mushrooms, they'll probably see Buddha. You know, with that, the whole set and setting. I don't need to explain to your viewers what set and setting is, but you know that is so important that you feel safe where you are, that you trust the facilitator completely, and then what you are bringing to the ceremony in your head. You know, if you're coming from a place of fear, that's not a good place. You know, and that's the facilitator's job is to work with that and calm you down and prepare you for the ceremony. So like I said, on the day, no, no food for a few hours, no coffee on the day. This person arrives, we sit together, we do some inhalation work, just sort of calm them down, talk. And then I always believe in doing the arc of a ceremony, start small and building bigger. So we, we sort of do the handshake, hug, full embrace, which in technical terms would be microdose, sub breakthrough, breakthrough. So the handshake, the first one, is just to familiarize the, the participant with the taste, the smell, the temperature, the inhaling, the smoke, just to get them. They won't have the experience. They might have a little, little touch of it, but it's just to relax them and make them go, okay, okay, I lived, I survived, I got that, okay. You know, because so many people read about ego death and they confuse it with death, death. <laughs> so you really want them to understand that they will come back. And this experience is, it's not like a 12 hour acid trip. It, it, it is 10 minutes. So they will come back and they will be coming back fairly soon. Then we go to a medium dose, a sub breakthrough dose. And then someone probably, some people have the full experience on that. Some people can actually break through on that. It really depends. And that helps you judge how far you're going to go on the next dose, or even if the next dose is even required. Each dose, as I said, takes about 10 minutes. You inhale on this pipe, one big, long, slow inhale. So by the time you get to the bigger dose, you're having to inhale for maybe 30, 40 seconds. So that does take some training and getting used to. One long, 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 slow inhale. Hold your breath. The facilitator counts backwards from 10. And then you lay back. And then, boom. I mean, as you're inhaling, you've already kind of, reality is bending as you're inhaling. 
I don't like the term psychedelics. I think it has a lot of baggage from the 60s of hippies throwing themselves out a window and screaming and going kind of mad and everything. And in pop culture, it has, you know, so many connotations. So I prefer the term entheogen, which is what, you know, a lot of the people in the U.S. try to legalize psychedelics, refer to, refer to it as an entheogenic revolution. Entheogen meaning reveal the God within. So we're talking much more of a mystical experience as opposed to, getting high on acid and going to a disco, <laughs> you know, so it is the, the God moment, the transcendence. So you inhale on the pipe and there is this incredible feeling of acceleration and expansion. It's like being strapped, I always say, to the outside of a rocket ship. It's very, very fast. Patrick, one thing Hannah and I are worried about is the toad. As somebody trying to get frogs and toads into my garden all the time, should we be worried about the toad, its welfare and well-being? And its endangered um, status as well. Yeah. So the welfare of the toad is, you know, the ultimate concern of, of I think, anybody doing these. The welfare of anything, any mesodon, you know, iboga, the plant, you know, and the gabon, ayahuasca, the vine, everything. It's all about worrying about where is this actually coming from? And are we, by expanding in the West, raping and pillaging a natural resource. To me, the future will be pure molecule. We'll be working with 5-MeO-DMT. A lot of purists don't want to hear that. They want to you know, continue working with the toad. The toad is called, it's the Sonoran Desert Toad. It's uh, the biggest land toad in the Americas. It's five to seven inches across its back. It lives in a very small area. Well, it's quite a big area, but it's small compared to the world, in the Sonoran Desert, which is in northern Mexico. It also exists on the border, so in Southern California, Southern Arizona, Southern New Mexico. Sometimes they call it the Colorado River toad. It's the same toad. It lives, hibernates underground for nine to 10 months. It comes up during the rainy season in the summer. I think it's June, July, August, or maybe May, June, July in the Sonoran Desert. And then for an orgy of copulation and eating, and then it goes back underground. It is threatened. You know, it is threatened because of population expansion, because of river diversion, because of climate change, because of pesticides. It's already threatened. And now it's got all these people running around trying to get a hold of it and milk it because it has these glands which are on its sort of on its shoulder, back, neck area, and then on its forearms. And these glands produce this venom, which contains 5-MeO-DMT as well as other things. You get a hold of the toad. No one is allowed to touch the toads legally now except for indigenous people. They are protected within Mexico, but obviously people do. And also it's a very big cartel drug area, Sonoran Desert, because it's on the border with the U.S. So there's a danger of cartel people noticing hippie people walking around the desert, let them walk around for a week, collect their medicine, and then go steal the toad medicine off them and sell it on the black market. So you have to really be careful of where you're getting your medicine. Is it coming from an indigenous source? Has it been protected? And has the toad been treated well? Because there is no need to hurt the toad. You just squeeze on the gland, the gland and it expresses onto a piece of glass. Then you put that glass in the sunshine the next day and it dries. And that is the medicine. There's no need to take the toads and gather them and move them to other areas because they seem to have a built-in GPS that when they're moved from their natural habitat, they die. I think some rich rich man put the like 20 on a plane to an island in Greece and tried to breed them there, and I think they all died. When they're raised in terrariums, they don't seem to make the medicine. So it really, really is about leaving the toads alone or disturbing them as little as possible in their indigenous area. So yes, toad preservation is, is a huge, huge concern. 
Yeah, and I think that's such an important issue and the, all the clinical research is really focusing on the synthetic 5-MeO-DMT for those exact reasons and for the reasons you discussed earlier about the purity. Yeah, I personally hate the word synthetic because that's literally the, the surefire way to get someone to not want to do it. So I always say pure molecule. You're either working with pure molecule or you're working with bufo or toad. But if as soon as someone says synthetic, they're going, oh, I don't want to do it. And you're like, oh. And, you know, my answer to that is everything is gone. <laughs> everything is made up of, you know, stardust, everything, you know, this glass, this table, this toe, this. So everything is gone. So what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, it's all carbon molecules and this and that. So what, what is the difference? You know, everything is gone. So it ta- it's going to take a while for people to, in the community to embrace that. But that, that is the future, working with, with pure molecule. And do you think there are conditions and people where 5-MeO-DMT is what is needed as opposed to DMT or psilocybin? To me, I've worked with afterwards. I've done several ayahuasca ceremonies. It's not my medicine. I find it very masochistic, (laughs) the concept that you have to sort of go through hell for five or six hours. I was like, why? Why do I have to do that? Also, the duration of time on all these things you know, acid, 10 hours, psilocybin, like eight hours or, you know, whatever, ayahuasca ceremony, five, six hours. You can do a lot of damage to someone staying in those altered states for that long, in my opinion. I mean, it works for other people. I'm very happy for them. To me, the almost the in and out aspect of 5-MeO is one of its biggest selling points. It's certainly one of its biggest selling points when it comes for medical applications because they can, if we get there with legalization, it could work within the parameters of a psychiatric appointment, you know, or a therapist appointment, you know, of an hour and a half to two hours, which is amazing compared to, you know, psilocybin treatments or MDMA treatments. They normally have two therapists and it goes on hours and they cost like three, four, five thousand because of all that time dedicated to it, where hopefully with the right people and the right, right, right movement, you know, we can work on something that is applicable to modern life, let's say. So it, to me, when so you, you sit down, go through the pipe, there's this incredible feeling of expansion and acceleration. It's like being strapped to the outside of a rocket ship. Someone said it's like going to zero and infinity in, in like 10 seconds. So as you're expanding and accelerating, 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 that is probably the point where someone might get nervous or might get scared because they're like, oh my God, oh my God, because it's just so fast and so happening all at once. And then... The ego death moment have you expand, 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 and then poof, you cease to exist. But in that second that you cease to exist, you become everything. You have the oneness moment, the God moment, the Godhead, whatever you want to say. And it's, it's not very visual, which is another reason why I prefer the term entheogen to psychedelic. For me, you know, unlike DMT or mushrooms or all these things, you know, all of those experiences, they have subject and observer. Oh, look at that. I'm high. Oh, look at that. Oh, listen to that. That sounds funny because I'm, I'm high. Oh, listen to that. Look at that. With Toad, with 5-MeO, you cease to exist. So who's observing and what are they observing? <laughs> you know, so it, it's, it's ineffable. When you come back, it's very hard to describe what you've just been through because if you can describe it, then that means you were there and you were watching. <laughs> so the very fact that you cease to exist everything at the same point it, it's it's a weird really weird space really beautiful space but it is very hard to describe 
Yeah, I guess I wonder whether the ineffable nature of it makes it more difficult to explain to people what to experience in a clinical setting as well to help people prepare for the experience. It's probably more challenging than for visual experience like with psilocybin. So I guess that's something that these companies are having to, to consider how best to explain that experience to people. I always say to people at the ceremony, I just go, shh, because your ego as it's reassembling itself, has this incredible urge to quantify what just happened. And people just start talking. Oh my God, it was like this. It was like this. And I just go, shh. I said, every word you say is denigrating the experience because you're trying to put it in a box. You're trying to say it was this, it was this, it was this. Just let it be. Just in its immenseness, in its enormity, in its incomprehensibility, just accept it and sit with that as opposed to, oh, it was this, it was this, it was that, it was this, it was that. And that to me is the best way to integrate is to just sit with it without trying to figure out what it was that you just went through. Because I always talk about it and people go, what is it? <laughs> and it, I mean, it's, it's very facile to say, but once you've done it, you know. <laughs> so after the experience of it, when do you reckon is a suitable time from your experience to start maybe an integration process where there might be more of like a talking element to it? I mean, people obviously sit with me, after, uh, sit with the, with the facilitator afterwards and, and, and start to talk. There's a lot of emotions, a lot of emotions. Joy, 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 and crying, but crying, crying for joy. I mean, you know, that's where I said where my dogs come in because they're just waiting. <laughs> to just be part of this whole love fest of hugging and loving. Then the people go away. And as I said, just be in nature, just be on your own. And then normally, right, probably the next day, we start talking, we start talking, we start talking. It is a lot of it. A lot of it is, it's experiential. <laughs> it's not visual. It's not vocal. It's experiential. So it's, it is by its nature, very hard to describe, but I mean, as a silly analogy, I said it's like reading about sex, talking about sex, and then having sex. You kind of go, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, now I see what, the, what everyone's talking about. Oh, that's what it's all about. <laughs> For that, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, sex, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. So it, it's, you know, huge, different, hugely different way, but the same sort of analogy. It It is hard to put into words. And to me, afterwards, after that peak moment, I knew every day I had a conscious choice to live in the light. I can have a bad day. I mean, you know, everybody can have a bad day. Everybody can have a negative emotion. But then I choose to return that place of peace. And I actively return to that place of peace. And I realize that this isn't really that important. Nothing in my life changed fundamentally. I still had a half-built house. I still had a dead dog. I still had everything that I had going into ceremony but it was my focus. It was my perception that had changed completely. And instead of this constant self-flagellation, you know, without getting too spiritual, I realized that I was a perfect light being like you are perfect light beings, like we are all perfect light beings. So all of the, oh, I don't have enough money or I'm too this, or I'm, all of those things just aren't really important at the end of the day. And that was a huge, huge, huge statement for someone who came from the fashion industry, which is, you know, rather superficial, <laughs> to put it mildly. And what impact would you say now, you know, you, you just brought up again the, f the fashion industry. Looking back now, what's your view on, on the fashion industry after this experience? 
you know, do, do you miss it? Do you still want to be involved? Or has it kind of changed how you see it? Well, for a while there, you go into, when you go into, when you, after post-ceremony and, and everything, you go into what we call the hermit phase, where you just, you can't deal with small, you know, small talk. You can't deal with, com- you know, cocktail conversations. You, everything seems shallow. You want deep meaning in everything. You change your friendship crowd. You change just people you hang out with. You make really big fundamental in changes in your life because you'll be sitting with someone and you go, I don't really want to be with this person. This person actually, when I think about it, isn't really here for me. They're here because they're feeding off my misery or they're, they enjoy that I'm so down all the time because it makes them feel up by having me around. I mean, all sorts of things. So you go through this sort of hermit phase and you reject a lot of people. I mean, for me, it was kind of everyone and everything for a while. And then, um, as I call it now, I'm re-emerging from my psychedelic cocoon. I realized that I had made peace with so much of my life. I now have a wonderful relationship with my mother. I have a starting a relationship with my father. I have a wonderful, wonderful relationship with my older gay brother. I mean, these are people that I spoke to once a decade and under duress before that. And um, my friends around me, initially, obviously, everyone thought I'd lost my mind. <laughs> and then they all just said, you know, one by one, whatever you did, can I do that? Because you've changed so much. And that's where it is about living by example, as opposed to preaching. Because when you preach, you know, people just go, okay, you sound like a Mooney. <laughs> you sound like one of those crazy people on the street that you walk around sort of thing. But once you live by example, then people want a piece of that. And But the one thing that was still missing was my relationship to creativity. I realized um, my teacher said to me, he goes, you know, you're so here for the healing and everything. He goes, but when people talk about fashion or shoes, you get up and walk out of the room. Because I was just, I don't want anything to do with that. And I realized I really needed to work on that. So about a year ago, I designed a sweatshirt with eyes all over it and symbolism and everything and all these things that I really were important to me. And I launched a little brand called um, The Doors of Perception. And I call it Entheogenic Apparel. <laughs> Feel good fashion, consciousness raising clothing. Uh, raising clothing. It's I source garments all over the world sustainably. I have them delivered to Ibiza. I have them deli- embroidered here on the island. And I have sell them on a website. And it just makes me feel good there there's a message behind it if you want to go that deep or it's just a really cool sweatshirt or a really cool baseball cap if you don't want to go that deep so far we've on, i've only done two groups one with these eyes all over another one with a disco ball on it but the next group i'm doing is a toad group the group after that i'm doing is a mushroom group and then we'll really get a little bit more heavier on the entheogenic message behind what i'm doing it's kind of grandiosely, (laughs) my wishing to normalize the conversation between psychedelics and mental health. Because I do have some leftover fame from the 90s, uh, notoriety, you know, I can get the Guardian to write an article about me, I can get the Times, I have yourselves talking to me, you know, because I'm an enthusiast. As I say, I'm an entheogen enthusiast, I am not a doctor, I, I don't have any formal training. So, you know, I, I can start to have these and people want a story. People want to see one person and their progression. When you hit people with cold, hard facts all the day, they can get a bit, eh, you know, or they don't understand. Or if you get too Gaia and get too spiritual, then you lose a lot of people too. So hopefully my story bridges a little bit of all of that. And I think that's going to be the future with all of these psychedelic therapies, uh, which is something I wanted to talk to you guys is you're going to a psychedelic therapist. Do you want a medical professional who's never done the medicine? 
to take care of you? Or do you want someone who's done the medicine 200 times, but has no medical degree? You know, that's going to be the big question going forward. Um, to me, it's a combination of both. But, you know, we need to figure out who is going to serve these wonder drugs because they can't just be used in isolation. Um, you know, there's the whole indigenous aspect, the whole ritual part, the whole ceremony part, which is so key to the ceremony and getting the right results out of it, as opposed to just here, take this pill, go home now. Yeah, I, I suspect in the NHS, we would really like to see this come into our national health service, you know, as a treatment for people who need it. And I suspect it will be a bit of a combination, you know, therapist, a medic, uh, maybe group therapy for some people. But we wondered also about your documentary, Patrick, you're making a documentary of your life. Yes, well, it's of my life. It's called, the working title, we're still in the fundraising phase, it's called My Road to Toad. Kind of like this podcast, we will touch on my childhood, we will touch on my success, and we will touch on the loss of that success, and then we'll get a bit more real when I get to Ibiza and talk about the wheels coming off, my stint in rehab, meeting the spiritual person, the whole story I've told you, and then working with the medicine. Again, anything I can do to help promote these causes and help normalize this subject is what I'm doing. When I did the article in The Guardian, which is probably, as I call it, my coming out of the psychedelic closet. <laughs> I've come out twice now in my life. So my coming out of the psychedelic closet, some of my friends called me up and they said, what the hell are you doing? You were the shoe guy. Now you're going to be the toad guy for the rest of your life. And I'm like, the shoe guy's dead. I said, I don't care if one person can listen to this uh, listen to this podcast or one person can read the guardian article and go and get help whether they they i mean go to the hoffman or they go to rehab or they reach out and find you know some psychedelic community then that's it that's what this is about it's all about spreading the word so that's what the that's what the documentary will be about it was going to be a buddy movie with my teacher uh, his name was cesar reyes but uh, very sadly, December 5th, 2021, he succumbed to pancreatic cancer at the age of 49. He, he knew he had it, and he lasted seven years on it by healing himself with the medicine, but eventually his earthly body gave out. So that kind of put a pause on the movie, and I was like, oh, I don't want to do this, no, without him. And then the producers talked to me, and they said, it, it was always about you, Patrick. They said, it, it, they, there has to be sort of the, the classic hero's journey. And they said, yes, the toad is part of it, yes, Cesar is part of it, but what people are going to tune in for hopefully is to see the progression and someone making big changes in their life, you know, and finding peace because you, we get stuck, you know, you changes allowed between the age of five and 15 or 15 and 25 and maybe 25 to 35, but then you're supposed to stay the same person for the rest of your life. I don't know why. And we're not, you know, we're not, we change completely. So I, at the age of 55 discovered toad and, of 60, I'm launching the doors of perception, you know, and making a documentary. Those are things that never in my wildest dreams would I have thought of when I was 40, 45, 50. But it's all about embracing change. Change hurts, it's painful, but it's better than being stuck in your old habits. I think even that's a powerful message to share. Yeah, really, really important message to share. People are scared. So we know we, we really believe in the power of sharing these yeah yeah on the podcast we've had quite a few stories of healing and it is so important and you're an expert by experience that's so important i think 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that's when people go, what qualifications do you have? And I said, well, I've lived it. <laughs> I said, you know, I don't have a PhD, I don't have this, but, you know, I've lived it. And, you know, when you talk to scientists, when there's no one around, they'll go, science only takes you up to like 90, 95% of what's going on. And if you talk about consciousness, where does consciousness come from? No one still really knows. You know, does it come from the brain? Does it? Where? Where is consciousness based? There's always that last few percentiles where they kind of go, eh. <laughs> you know. And if they're really, really honest with themselves, the ones I'm talking to, they're like, yeah, spiritual. There, there, there is an unknown that we can't quite put our finger on, and maybe never will because it, it's like I said, it's ineffable. And that's what I find really interesting. That's where the you know. Where the, work, yeah. where the work gets done. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a brilliant a brilliant place to finish, Hannah, probably. We, Patrick, sadly, we have run out of time. We've run over a little bit. It's been fascinating and absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs>